All right, everybody. It is Friday. Congratulations. <laughs> Mazel tov. We made Mazel it. Mazel tov. We have made it. It's May 19th, 2023. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, any fun uh, weekend plans ahead? Certainly not as fun as yours, birthday boy. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Sunday, May 21st, will mark my birthday. Uh, Alex, my wife, has planned a surprise for me that she hasn't told me about. So I'm looking forward to finding out what I have in store this weekend. It is not a surprise party unless, of course, I'm not included. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll have a full recap for everybody on Monday as to what what my birthday entailed. Though she really blew it out of the park last year for my 40th birthday. This year, 4-1. We're going to keep it low-key, I think. (laughs) What do I know? All right, let's get to the headlines. A historic G7 summit with President Biden and the leaders of the world's largest economies is underway. So what's on the agenda? Plus, Biden is saying hi and bye, cutting his trip short to get home for debt ceiling negotiations. We'll have a status update on where things stand. The Supreme Court gave Google and Twitter and other social media platforms two really big wins when it comes to whether they can be held liable for content on their platforms. In Disney vs. DeSantis, Disney is now scrapping plans for a billion-dollar Florida campus. The shocking number of older Americans who are skipping or delaying medications because of the cost. And this weekend, try listening to the birds. Ah, experts say your mental health will thank you. Plus, Moshe's on this day in history. It's the 25th birthday, Jill, for one classic duet, The Boy Is Mine with Brandy and Monica. <laughs> and cheers to the freaking weekend, what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend. I guess birthday cake's in order, Moshe? That's my understanding, though I'm a big <laughs> ice cream person. So I've never been a big cake person, but, you know, it's the kind of standard operating procedure on your birthday. you got to have a cake. But, well, again, it's all a surprise, Jill. It's all a surprise. I'm very excited. All right, let's get to some news here. The G7 summit is currently underway in Hiroshima, Japan. And uh, there is a lot on the agenda. First off, the location itself is historic. It's the site of the world's first ever nuclear attack. As Reuters points out, the longest shadows at the summit will be cast by two countries that weren't even invited, China and Russia. So who is there? As a reminder, the G7 countries are the United States, Japan, Germany, the UK, France, Canada, and Italy. India and Vietnam are reportedly attending this year as what's called observers. Some say the challenge here is to put their own differences aside to project a united front against China and Russia. President Biden reportedly looking for some type of unity when it comes to issues like Taiwan, the South China Sea, and Beijing's aggressive economic practices. And when it comes to China, the world's second largest economy and uh, what's known as the world's factory floor, there are a lot of divisions. Case in point, French President Emmanuel Macron visited Beijing just last month and actually called for the European Union to reduce its dependence on the United States. So clearly all seven of these countries not exactly on the same page here. China and Xi Jinping, by the way, 
kicking off their own summit at the same time as the G7. It is called the China Central Asia Summit. So China is hosting five Central Asian countries. They are five former Soviet republics. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Just a few of the stands there. (laughs) According to the New York Times, the goal of that summit is to counter what it sees as a U.S.-dominated world order that is trying to contain and suppress China. Just as a reality check here, uh, with all due respect to the five stands meeting with China, the G7 is uh, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the U.K., and the U.S., So uh, as far as, and it's called the G7, it's the world's seven largest economies, minus China, of course. Um, And so they still, regardless of what comes out of China this weekend, still going to be the dominant players in the global economy. We'll get more to the China thing in a second, but the big agenda item for the G7 the next couple of days will be Ukraine and their expected counteroffensive against Russia. That's expected to really get started here in the next couple of weeks. The leaders of the G7 plan to tighten sanctions even further on Russia if there are more sanctions available to them. They are looking more at Russian energy exports. They're also expected to hear from Ukrainian President Zelensky remotely. He'll likely be asking for what he's been asking for for a while, which is even more weapons. So far, the G7 uh, countries are united on this. The question is, can they keep the momentum going? The British just delivered some advanced missiles to Ukraine, and they're pledging to lead a coalition to provide the Ukrainians with F-16 fighter jets. The Germans just announced their biggest ever aid package to Ukraine, $3 billion worth of tanks and other equipment. The U.S. Defense Department has announced another $1.2 billion package to bolster Ukraine. The big challenge, though, is, again, keeping this momentum going. Economic resources are not unlimited. All of these countries face domestic pressures, uh, inflation, economic issues, etc., and just some fatigue among their populations about how long this war will be going between Ukraine and Russia. The goal here is to provide Ukraine with enough weaponry to take back enough land in the counteroffensive so they can have some real leverage here in the peace talks with Russia. Uh, as far as the latest maps are concerned, it appears Russia still controls about 15% of Ukraine. And it's interesting here, as we talk about the G7, Jill, it wasn't long ago that this was the G8, which included Russia. Uh, They were suspended in 2014 after they invaded and annexed Crimea from Ukraine, and then eventually Russia withdrew from the group. So it was the G8, then it became the G7, uh, and now uh, what was once an ally of theirs and, you know, a summit attendee, Putin sitting at the table, is now effectively an enemy here. Uh, beyond uh, geopolitics, a big issue they'll be discussing is the artificial intelligence, how to handle that on a united global front, how to regulate it, as we discussed on the podcast yesterday. The Europeans are really taking the lead on this, so expect to hear more from them on that. Jill, you also mentioned the location here, Hiroshima. It is significant, especially given what we've seen as far as nuclear weapons are concerned in the past couple of years. Putin, of course, has been very loose with his nuclear rhetoric, uh, being very threatening with his nuclear weapons. China is building up its nuclear arsenal. North Korea has been testing its nuclear-capable missiles. Iran, of course, continues its own development of nuclear weapons. So this backdrop, not insignificant, is a reminder of what nuclear weapons can actually do. Uh, And you mentioned the China thing. It's not that far away, the summit in Japan from China. And there are some real divides because non-U.S. countries are going to make a bet against the U.S., right? They want to hedge. And as they look ahead to the next century... Typically, uh, hegemons, global powers, uh, they lead the world for a while and then they go away. Look at the British. Uh, And in this case, 
the U.S. You know, the bet is from Europe that they can't put all their chips with the U.S. because at some point the U.S. won't be the world's hegemon. At least that's the bet that they'll be making. And they do need to keep a relationship going with the Chinese. And so that is where things get a bit fishy because you have the U.S. and Japan that are pretty united on this and the Europeans that, you know, again, are more with the U.S., but still hedging their bet a bit. Moshe, it's also important to mention that Biden will be cutting his trip short. He is skipping a stop in Papua New Guinea so that he could get back to the United States for debt ceiling negotiations. This is a big deal. Well, first of all, it would have been the first time that a U.S. president visited that country. Uh, But he was also going to do that and then go to a big meeting in Australia. And all of this was part of his plan, again, to unite countries against China, particularly in that region of the world. He was asked about the debt ceiling and the deadline while he was overseas. As of now, that June 1st, or at least the first two weeks of June, is still looking like the date at when the U.S. could potentially default uh, on its debt if a deal isn't reached. A lot on the line. Experts say if the U.S. defaults, it could have a devastating impact, not just on the U.S. economy, but that it would have ripple effects around the world. And two of the biggest holders of that debt, uh, by the way, Japan and Britain, who are part of the G7 and will be there with Biden in Japan. Yeah, a reminder that about 75% of our debt is held domestically, but 25% of U.S. debt, the largest economy in the world, is held internationally. The number one holder is Japan of U.S. debt. And if the U.S. defaults on debt, that's the U.S. admitting that we're no good on our money, and that'll make it more difficult to borrow money in the future. And that's effectively how we grow this economy. So the debt limit is a very big deal. The negotiations are continuing between uh, Republican House staffers and the White House. Congressional leaders signaled on Thursday that they may be inching closer to a solution, but they don't quite have one yet. And until there is a deal that they can guarantee passes, uh, both houses of Congress and the president will sign, there is no deal. But things seem to be going well enough where Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, announced that they will be proceeding with their recess uh, that started on Thursday. Of course, they miss a vacation. (laughs) Well, they will tell you, Jill, that they have important work to do back in their home states and home districts. But yes, it is a criticism of Congress that uh, they tend to have short work weeks in Washington. The thing right now, and the reason why I mentioned there's no deal until there's a deal, is both Speaker of the House McCarthy, the Republican, President Biden, Democrat, are facing pressure from uh, the ends of their constituencies, uh, from the left flank and the right flank. The Freedom Caucus, which is the right flank, that's the flank that gave McCarthy so many problems when he was trying to become Speaker in early January. They're actually demanding that he steps away from the negotiating table, saying that the White House must abide by every single thing that they wanted, all the cuts they want. They don't want any compromise on anything. At the same time, You have Democrats on the left, Bernie Sanders, Liz Warren. Some senators wrote a letter in the last 24 hours telling President Biden, you're giving up too much. Just get around the whole House Republicans. Uh, They are asking him to either invoke the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which has a provision related to the debt, but has never been tried before. Effectively, what they're saying is, Mr. President, screw the Republicans in the House, do your own thing, or just cancel the debt ceiling altogether. It's a dumb rule. And uh, don't concede anything to Republicans. So this is going to be key to watch that if there is a deal struck between McCarthy and Biden, will they be able to get each of their the left flank and the right flank aboard to actually pass that deal? 
All right, on to our next story. The Supreme Court gave Silicon Valley two huge wins on Thursday, protecting them from lawsuits that some argued would upend the entire industry and the entire internet. I want to take a look at both cases. The first one is called Twitter vs. Tamna. In this case, the American family of a Jordanian man that was killed in an ISIS attack back in 2017 in Istanbul. Well, they sued Twitter, claiming that social media companies, including Twitter, knowingly aided ISIS, which they argued is in violation of federal anti-terrorism laws because these social media platforms hosted some of the group's content on their platforms, even though there are policies that are in place to limit that type of content. In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court said that the lawsuit cannot go forward. Yeah, so Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the decision here. Obviously, uh, he's a conservative, but it was, as you say, a unanimous nine to zero decision. Conservatives and liberals all agreed that companies like Twitter should not be held liable for every single thing that is put on the platform. He wrote in part that it might be that bad actors like ISIS are able to use platforms like these for illegal and sometimes terrible ends. But the same could be said of cell phones, email, or the internet generally. Thomas stressed that the plaintiffs, in this case, uh, the family, have failed to allege the defendants intentionally provided any substantial aid to the attack at issue, nor did they pervasively and systemically assist ISIS in any way that would render them liable for every ISIS attack. Essentially here, you saw the court, in this case, stand by the idea that these tech platforms cannot be held liable for all the content on their platform. This is a core idea at the beginning of the internet that the government should allow these companies leeway in order to uh, allow the most amount of content on the platforms and allow these uh, platforms to evolve and develop, et cetera. It's a core idea of Section 230, which we'll get into in just a second here. That's right. So the second case was Gonzalez versus Google. This one was dismissed by the court, which wrote that it was doing so, quote, in light of our decision in Twitter. So that leaves a lower court ruling intact that said that Google is immune from a lawsuit that accuses its YouTube platform of aiding and abetting terrorism. Now, in this case, the family of Nohemi Gonzalez, a 23-year-old U.S. citizen who was killed in a 2015 ISIS attack in Paris, they were suing Google. They said that YouTube, which is owned by Google, that their targeted recommendations violated a U.S. anti-terrorism law by helping radicalize viewers and promote ISIS's agenda. Now, this isn't just about YouTube hosting the content. This one is actually about the algorithm that promotes those videos on its platform. So, for example, the videos that YouTube will recommend to you based on what you've been searching for and watching already. So right now, that content is protected under Section 230. That's a section of the law, which basically says social media companies are not responsible for the third-party content on their sites because they're not involved in the creative process of actually shooting, editing, and producing those videos. But an attorney for the Gonzalez family had argued that YouTube presents thumbnail images and links to different videos that the YouTube algorithm thinks the person wants to watch. So even though the videos are created by the original user, the thumbnails are actually created by YouTube, so they shouldn't be protected under Section 230. Again, it appears in this case, the court didn't buy that argument. Uh, in the Google case, they didn't want to rule on it at all. They left it to the lower courts, uh, citing their other ruling. Section 230 here, again, was developed in the mid-90s. It helped enable the rise of these social networks to ensure that they didn't uh, assume any legal liability. And it's interesting, Jill, because the Section 230, you'll often hear invoked and criticized 
by both parties, by Republicans who believe it allows the tech websites to uh, censor things, and then by Democrats who believe that Section 230 makes them immune from dealing with misinformation on their platform. So each side has a criticism of Section 230, hasn't done anything about it. Uh, in this case, it was they wanted to see what the courts would do about it. And it appears the Supreme Court is saying, we out too. <laughs> That's their official position. Yeah, I, I mean, you, did you read the decision? That's what Clarence Thomas, <laughs> that's how he ends. That's how he ends the decision by saying, we out. Uh, no, no, no. But I mean, that's essentially the reading of the decision. We, you know, happy to link to it on our Instagram account so you can read the full decision for yourself. But the bottom line is, um, this is where things stand. This is the the laws that were set up in the 90s for the internet. Uh, this is something we spoke to yesterday about the AI rulings that some of these rules and this openness did benefit the internet, but it also did, it also meant that social media and other things basically had carte blanche to develop uh, with no real ramifications. And obviously we know the impact it has had in, uh, on our world. So uh, the question is, will something happen with Section 230 in the coming years? Well, expect to hear more about it on the campaign trail, especially it's you know something that Donald Trump and Republicans especially talk about, uh, but it appears for now that it stands. All right, we've got plenty of news coming up, but first a word from some of our sponsors. Let's start with Bowl and Branch. We are so happy to be partnering again with a brand that helps you get an amazing night's sleep. Bowl and Branch, they have a great sale for Mo News listeners. These sheets are made with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash. Mosh, I could truly attest to that. They absolutely get softer every time you wash them. Um, these sheets have already been bought by millions of people. The company actually spends a lot of time focused on the supply chain. And it turns out that organic cotton is much better for the environment and also for the farmers in India where Bolan Branch sources their materials. We discussed this on the Instagram account recently. Another interesting fact, we recently learned that four U.S. presidents have used Bolan Branch sheets Okay, but let's get to the deal here. Starting now, Mo News listeners will get 15% off site-wide. You can use our code MONEWS to get 15% off today at bowlandbranch.com. That is bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. The promo code is MONEWS. All right, Joe, let's talk about our other big sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. We've both been using their AG1 supplement since the fall. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. Easy, quick. It lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten more than 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. We all know that getting all your vitamins, all your nutrition, the probiotics is challenging, and the AG1 powder lets you do it very simply every morning. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D, as well as five free travel packs to take with you on the go of AG1. You can visit right now athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of the offer and get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, it's athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, to access this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. All right, time now for the speed read from CNBC. Disney abandoned plans to open up a new employee campus in Lake Nona, Florida, amid rising tensions with the state's governor, Ron DeSantis. In a memo, Disney cited, quote, changing business conditions and the return of CEO Bob Iger. So this means the company will not be moving forward with construction of the campus and will no longer be asking more than 2,000 California-based employees 
to relocate to Florida. A lot of Disney employees had balked at the company's relocation plans when they were first announced in July of 2021 by former CEO Bob Chapik. The campus was originally slated to open this year, but was delayed to 2026. Disney reiterating in its memo that the company is still planning to invest about $17 billion in Florida over the next 10 years, which includes adding about 13,000 jobs. The company, by the way, employs about 75,000 people in the state. Yeah, it's one of the largest employers in Florida. It's basically Disney and Publix, for the Floridians that know uh, that Publix is basically ubiquitous in the state. Disney's announcement does come amid that bitter feud with DeSantis, who we should note, Jill, appears he will be announcing a presidential run uh, next week. That came out of Fox News and several other outlets on Thursday. Back to the Disney thing, though, the company did file a lawsuit accusing DeSantis and the new board members of the new special district of carrying out a campaign of political retribution against the company. So we're going to watch that litigation as it goes. This all goes to Disney's original criticism, you know, vocal criticism, written criticism, of the uh, parental rights bill uh, that's been called the Don't Say Gay Bill by critics uh, last year. After Disney criticized it, uh, that's when DeSantis took his revenge uh, and took away some special treatment that the company has gotten for decades, uh, put a new board in charge of political appointees. Disney pulled a fast one on DeSantis. We don't need to go through all the back and forth, but this is just the latest uh, in the battle between the two. And again, expect to hear more about that on the campaign trail because you have heard some Republicans, notably some of uh, DeSantis' likely opponents, uh, Nikki Haley, Donald Trump, criticize DeSantis here and take Disney's side, saying that that's not what Republicans do, is go after businesses because they don't like what they have to say. So uh, it will be interesting to see how Disney and the fight here plays a role in the 2024 election. Uh, yeah, Nikki Haley went as far as to say... Come on up to South Carolina. We'll take you. Which is unlikely. I think uh, Disney World is uh, safe in Orlando. But, you know, you always got to make your offer and throw it out there. Uh, Maybe. Maybe Disney Charleston or Disney Columbia (laughs) or Disney Gaffney. I don't know. Name your South Carolina town of choice. Maybe it's coming to you sometime soon. All right. From Axios, Uber is letting teens under 18 request and take rides on their own for the first time. A new teen accounts feature will let 13 to 17-year-olds set up their own accounts as part of a family profile. Only, quote, experienced and highly rated drivers will be able to drive teens. Uber says that parents can track their kids' rides in real time, as well as call their driver. And drivers can also opt out of picking up teenagers if they so choose. They're a rowdy bunch, you know? I mean, it is a legitimate question if there are certain drivers who are like, I do not want to be driving around a bunch of 14-year-olds or 16-year-olds, et cetera. Understandable. These teen accounts will be available soon in a handful of cities, Atlanta, Columbus, Minneapolis. Also of note, teen accounts are also coming to Uber Eats. Until now, I mean, there's been a workaround. Teens have been able to use their parents' Uber app uh, to order both on Uber Eats and Ubers, but it appears they're extending this. Again, these are attached to their parents' accounts. And they have added a number of safety features, including uh, in-car audio recording, which is something you can read up on, which effectively records the ride and makes that available. That's one thing here that could give parents peace of mind uh, as their uh, under 18-year-olds take rides. And as far as the youngest kids, uh, Uber is also expanding an option allowing parents and caretakers to request rides with a car seat. And that's going to be coming first to New York City and L.A. Mosh, for anybody who listened to our Mother's Day podcast, they heard a tale of a young Jill Wagner who was never allowed to take cabs when I was a teen. And Mm -hmm. one of my 
And my friend. This is very much in the pre Uber era. Yes. Pre smartphone era. (laughs) Decades ago, when people would call cabs and I was not allowed to take one, I did. And then my friend's younger brother basically ratted us out. But we had thought we were safe because we took with us a knife, not a regular knife, a butter knife. And we thought that this Mm. butter knife was going to protect us in some capacity. Well, I'm glad to have you here today, Jill. And I will, <laughs> I'll credit the butter knife for keeping you safe in that cab ride. From NBC News, a growing number of older adults say that they cannot afford their prescription medications. This is according to a study published Thursday in JAMA Network Open. About one in five adults, 65 and up, either skipped, delayed, took less medication than was prescribed, or took somebody else's medication last year because of concerns about costs. So that is up from one in seven people in 2016. And the authors attribute the increase to rising inflation and prescription drug costs, which are notoriously high compared to other countries of similar size and wealth. So, Jill, here are some further numbers. About 30% of older adults used a coupon to afford their medication. A quarter of the respondents asked a physician for a lower cost medication. And about one in five shopped around at pharmacies to try to find a lower price. Nearly one in 10 respondents in this study said they actually went without basic needs like gas or groceries in order to afford their medication. And about 5% said they went into debt to get their medication. The study's authors said that more physicians should get comfortable speaking with their patients about whether they can afford their medication. That's an important thing for doctors to engage their patients on. One of the study's authors saying physicians worry that patients don't want to talk about it But I think one way to normalize these conversations is just to ask people if they want to have them. From the Washington Post, if you're looking to improve your mental health, pay attention to birds. Two studies published last year in scientific reports said that seeing or hearing birds could be good for our mental well-being. All right, let's all give it a try for a few seconds. Okay, everybody, feel better? Jill, I feel like I was in the middle of a rainforest just there. (laughs) Well, research has consistently shown that more contact and interaction with nature, um, it's associated with better body and brain health. Birds appear to have specific healing benefits. They're almost everywhere, and they provide a way to connect us to nature. And even if they're hidden in trees or in underbrush, we can still revel in their songs. An environmental neuroscience student says the special thing about bird songs is that even if people live in very urban environments and don't have a lot of contact with nature, they still link the songs of birds to vital and intact natural environments. It's a really good point because even in the city, you hear birds chirping. Uh, Recent research also suggests that listening to recordings of their songs, even through headphones, can alleviate negative emotions. We wake my daughter up actually every day at her sound machine. One of the options is birds chirping. And so we wake her up to birds every day. How's Alex reacting to that? She's like, is she liking the birds in the morning? (laughs) She's like, again? Well, well, hold on. Are you giving her like straight up rainforest birds? Are you giving her just like a subtle, like, you know, one bird chirping? It's subtle birds and it actually starts out low and then eventually gets a little bit louder. Most of the time she gets up on her own, to be be totally honest. Listen, I'm going to have to give this a try on like Mondays or Tuesdays sometimes Wednesdays when I'm like burnt out or stressed or, you know, dreading the week, maybe I need to take a moment to just literally listen to the birds. 
and I'll let everyone know how it goes. Apparently, in one study, researchers asked 1,300 participants to collect information about their environment and well-being three times a day using a smartphone app called Urban Mind. The participants were not explicitly told that the researchers were looking at birds. The app was also collecting data about their sleep quality, air quality, and location details. But by analyzing the data, the researchers found a significant positive association between seeing or hearing birds and improved mental well-being, even when accounting for other explanations like education, occupation, the presence of greenery or water, which are some other things that have been associated with positive mental health. And apparently these benefits persisted well beyond the bird encounter, so to speak. If a participant reported seeing or hearing birds at one point, their mental well-being was higher on average hours later, even if they did not encounter birds at the next check-in. So these birds, they have an impact. Jill, I should add that my father for a while was very much into collecting finches, these like little birds. And for a while at his tool warehouse, he was breeding them. This is a project my father took on for a couple of years in his mid-60s. Anyway, and so at one point, I think he had 60 or 70 finches and he was selling them online. And there's like a whole like marketplace online of like selling birds, buying birds, etc. And I was like, what is going on with you? And he's like, don't criticize this. This makes me genuinely happy. And now, Abba, if you're listening to this podcast edition, I just want to say, I'm sorry. There's literally research data that backs up your argument. You were, in fact, right, and you deserve those 60 or 70 finches. I should say, he has no none today, but maybe maybe he should get back into it. Most there's this really funny meme that I saw that was like, you know, one day you're wild and young and carefree, and then, and then the next, you get really excited about seeing a bluebird <laughs> like flying past your window. And it's just like bird watching does just creep up on you. Out of nowhere, you're like into birds. All right, now time for On This Day in History on this Friday, May 19th. This weekend, in 1932, American aviator Amelia Earhart became the first woman to pilot an airplane solo across the Atlantic. She became a household name. Uh, People called her Lady Lindy. Uh, Then, of course, just a few years later, during an attempt to become the first woman to complete a circumnavigational flight around the globe, In 1937, she disappeared over the Central Pacific Ocean just three weeks, actually, before her 40th birthday. Investigations, public interest continued into her disappearance, though she was declared dead, and they still continue nearly 90 years later. All right, now time on this birthday weekend, Jill. There was an iconic happy birthday rendition that some of you may remember uh, on this day 61 years ago. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. That, of course, was Marilyn Monroe, the actress, singing Happy Birthday to President John F. Kennedy at Madison Square Garden uh, in 1962. The rumor was, Jill, uh, at the time, there's been various reports and biographies about this, that she was having an affair with President Kennedy uh, in the time leading up to that. At one point, there were also reports that she was having an affair with his brother, Bobby Kennedy. uh, But uh, nonetheless... The Happy Birthday, Mr. President, uh, iconic performance. And that that dress, I believe Kim Kardashian uh, wore that dress to one of the Met Galas recently, right? She did. Um, and yes, certainly one of the most iconic happy birthdays in history. It's sad, though, we would lose her at such a young age. Actually, just a couple months after that rendition, uh, she died later that summer of 62 from a drug overdose, just at the young age of 36. All right, fast forward, uh, a happy fifth wedding anniversary to Prince Harry and actress Meghan Markle uh, on this day in 2018. They were married at Windsor Castle. I actually remember getting up early and watching 
that wedding. Oh, interesting. So not just the William Kate wedding, but you did get up for the Harry Meghan I wedding did. as well. I did. Judge away, Mosh. <laughs> <laughs> Jill, I don't judge. I woke up early to for the uh, King's coronation just a couple weeks ago on a Saturday morning. All right, we're going to end, of course, as we typically do on this day with a bit of pop culture news. Jill, your favorite hit number one this weekend with this song. Jill, on this day 33 years ago, Madonna reached number one with Vogue. And one more 90s musical anniversary we want to uh, touch on today before we go. Twenty-five years ago today, Jill, that was Brandy and Monica releasing "The Boy Is Mine." I feel like I remember watching the MTV uh, Video Music Awards. That was like a big—I mean, that was big summer in '98. For VMAs, I'd more think of Madonna and that kiss with Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. Yeah, Jill, a very memorable moment around that time, though I'm just looking up here, the jams of summer 98. So The Boy Is Mine finished number one for the summer. Uh, but then you also had Shania Twain, You're Still the One, Next, Too Close, uh, My Way by Usher, and All My Life by Casey and JoJo. And then also getting jiggy with it with uh, Will Smith. So summer 98 was... Uh, off the hook. I think that's what we, that, I think that's the expression we were using back then. And Shania Twain, though, still going strong. She actually performed with Harry Styles. She, you're still the one at one of his concerts. Yeah, Shania is still performing. Uh, oh, Ghetto Superstar, Summer '98. Great Fat song. Boy Slim, Rockefeller Skank, uh, Backstreet Boys, Everybody, Everybody, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. Wow, Summer '98, guys. Not bad. Oh, Intergalactic by Beastie Boys. Money Ain't a Thing by Jermaine Dupri. You Get What You Give by New Radicals. Oh my God, that used to play on repeat. I used to work at Best Buy that summer. That is the CD that might be in my car. <laughs> New Radicals, You Get What You Give? No, just, just a combo platter of all of those songs. Oh, wow, that's what I call music 1998. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> this weekend, I promise, I will get the CD out of the Wrangler. All right, that brings us to cheers to the freaking weekend. What we're watching, what we're eating, and what we're reading this weekend. Kick us off, Jill. Okay, so I can't believe I didn't mention this last week. I am watching Air. It is finally streaming as of last week. This is the story, of course, of Nike shoe salesman Sonny Vaccaro and how he led the company in the pursuit of Michael Jordan and how it totally revolutionized sneakers and the company directed by Ben Affleck. Jason Bateman's in it. Matt Damon. It's supposed to be amazing. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to say it's supposed to be. I saw it in theaters. So I thought it was great. And I think I recommended it on this podcast. You did, you did. Ago, I'm, I'm like a month so, late to the game. Thanks for getting with the program. <laughs> Jill, I'm going to binge on a little bit of uh, trash TV this weekend. Can I call it that? Selling Sunsets out with a new season on Netflix. Speaking of no judgment, I have no judgment on TV. I My friends used to say I had very highbrow and then lowbrow taste because I, I, yeah. I love all those types of reality shows. Well, no tougher transition than the following, Jill. What are you reading this weekend? Speaking of highbrow. Yes, I am reading The Daughter of Auschwitz. It is written by Tova Friedman and also a war reporter, Malcolm Brabant. Um, Tova is one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz. I actually heard her speak this week at a friend's house. There were tons of kids in the audience. They were captivated. They asked some really amazing questions afterward. I have audio of the event. I'm going to be turning it into a podcast on our feed. 
Moshe, as you and I have talked about before, there are so few Holocaust survivors left. So if you have the chance to hear one speak in person, you got to do it. And um, and then I thought, if I have the opportunity, I want to record it and at least put it out so that anyone who listens to our podcast can check it out as well. Yeah, that's a great idea. And if uh, those of you haven't heard back in February, for International Holocaust Remembrance Day, Jill interviewed a survivor. And so I'd highly recommend that if you uh, head back in the feed to check that out. All right, Moshe, what are you reading? So I'm reading a piece right now by Joanna Stern. She's the Wall Street Journal personal tech columnist. Uh, she has a piece out on the new Apple headset. Uh, and the question she asked is, can it be more than a nerd helmet? That's the big <laughs> question with the metaverse, right? Um, you know, all these like uh, glasses like Oculus that Facebook's been developing for years, spending billions of dollars on. Is virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, the metaverse going to be a thing? Apple's getting the game, and we know that Apple has had some success uh, with a thing called the iPhone and its various innovations through the years. Um, can they do the same thing for virtual reality is the big question she asked. I happen to interview her this week, and we'll be putting uh, a com my conversation with Joanna Stern out on an upcoming podcast for everyone as well. That'll head to the premium feed uh, in the next day or two. So if you haven't joined Mo News Premium yet, we'll be making that conversation on all things AI, tech, social media, available on that feed, head over to mo.news slash premium today to get access to that extra content uh, and support what we're doing here at Mo News. Mosh, what are you eating? So uh, I am really into pretzels right now, Jill. Cue the Seinfeld joke. These pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> there, she hasn't lost it, folks. Uh, we're really into these Quinn whole grain sea salt pretzels. Uh, they're like extra crunchy. I think we find them at Whole Foods. Anyway, not sponsored by Quinn's, but Really digging them lately. What are you eating this weekend? Let them eat cake. We are going to be eating some cake because also on this day, my parents got married. It is their anniversary. So happy anniversary, mom and dad. And uh, there will definitely be some cake eating around my house or their house or wherever we celebrate. Can I ask what anniversary? You can, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, what is it? It's got to be like 40... It's not 50. Do the math. It's not 50, it but it's were high. Were they married before you were born? Yes, and I have an so, older brother. Yeah. So it's high 40s. Mm, high 40s. Okay, cool. My parents, uh, their wedding anniversary, their, it'll be their 44th, is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Now I feel really bad that I don't know <laughs> how many years, but I will ask them. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I, I, I think it's kind of amusing. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, everybody. All right, let's close. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> all right, let's close this. All right, let's shut this down before um <laughs> before I lose. <laughs> All right, let's shut this. Let's let's shut this down before it, we hit Monday here, Joe. All right, thank you everybody for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Uh, don't forget to follow us also on Instagram at Mosh at M O S H E H over on the Instagram account. And uh, again, if you can uh, consider joining Mo News Premium, it'll allow us to continue to do what we do and continue to make additional offerings available to you, additional content, interviews, answer your questions, etc. So you can check that out again over at mo.news slash premium. There's a link in the show notes. All right. Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.